Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Welcome to another episode of Mike and Mike Theology Plus, where theology matters. So we There's are only con- so many ways that I can kind of like <laughs> accentuate that, that yeah. you know, like where theology matters. Yeah, that sounded like uh, so that. That's for Sarah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we are um, plowing on in our discussion of the different covenants, and Sarah will get to this about December. I think she apparently, said, yeah. yeah, she said she's behind a little yeah. bit. So I was a little offended actually. <laughs> she hasn't even listened to our young Earth, old Earth. Right. Argument, dis- discussion, yeah, points of view, yeah. So last time we talked about the Mosaic Covenant, and um, I went back and listened to that. I, I thought we did a decent job for a couple Gentiles talking about the the Mosaic Covenant. Um, so I did have recently have lunch with a, a friend who's a Messianic Jew, and uh, they just have a an interesting take on. Things. He is actually looking to move to Israel. That's how serious he takes his uh, Judaism. But uh, that's just that's all for for just fun intro. So, as a dispensationalist, do you think that he currently has a claim on what was promised to Abraham and to Moses? In not directly through himself. Mm. Why? Because those promises were fulfilled in Jesus. So if he wants to be part, to have part of those promises, he needs to be in Jesus. Just like Ishmael doesn't have claim to those promises. So Jesus is the physical descendant of Abraham and David. And so the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant that we're going to talk about tonight, he is the ultimate recipient of those promises. When you think about the covenant structures, do you think about them in any way nesting or containing one another, or are they all separate? Absolutely nested. So I see... um, Progressive revelation. So we have the Proto-Evangelium. And that gives us a hint at how God's going to do it, but there's not a lot of details there. So that's why I think a couple podcasts back I said something about how I see the Abrahamic covenant being the premier covenant of the Bible. Because it's really, it's the first time we get a lot of details of what God's planning to do. He makes some really big promises. Um and then I think we both see the Mosaic Covenant as a here and now instantiation working out of the Abrahamic Covenant. When I went back and listened to our podcast, I picked up on maybe a minor difference because I think you saw the Abrahamic Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant being more the outworking of the merely the physical part of the Abrahamic Covenant, perhaps. Yeah. It, it ties in on the spiritual side in that the Messiah is coming through the people that are defined by the Mosaic Covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant was purely conditional. It was 
totally if then if then if sure. then um it was for a land that was promised to them for as long as the covenant was instantiated it was pointing to an end and christ was that end and so when christ comes that end has been met and therefore the mosaic covenant is done with i think i think paul would argue that it coming after the abrahamic covenant shows that it ends before the abrahamic covenant mm. where does he uh, i haven't picked up on that does he uh, I think it's in Galatians, so I'm a little surprised by this. I should pick Galatians I should, three, yeah. I believe, where well, he talks he, about the promise. You know, the law coming 430 years later does not nullify the promise given beforehand. Right. Yeah. So he he seems to be pointing to something um, that comes later, but does not in any way supersede the promises given before. And then I guess you have to go to Paul's writing of the Hebrews. Uh, which I don't think Paul wrote it, but anyway, um, where it shows very clearly that the Mosaic Covenant is abrogated. Right. Sorry, had to get yeah. those out. So, but wouldn't you see definitely you said but? Yeah, because there's a contrast here. Because <laughs> I, because uh, I, I think there are definitely spiritual aspects to the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, obviously the priesthood. Um, Hebrews would say that all of that was like a shadow of what really exists. So the, my Messianic Jew friend, um, may take it a little bit more literal than what I would. Um, but he talks about there being a, you know, a tabernacle or a temple in heaven right now. I, at some, at some level, I think I agree with that. I don't know that I think that there's, you know, an actual, but I think all those things, the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant and the seraphim and the mercy seat and all the things that the priests do obviously prefigured the sacrifice that Christ would have. Through the Mosaic Covenant, I think Israel was a blessing to the nations. Um, at least Nineveh got you know reprieved from judgment during the time when the Mosaic Covenant was in effect and Potentially other Gentiles could have, you know, like Ruth and Naomi and Rahab. Um, not Naomi, she was already Jew. But Ruth and Rahab. So I think that there's aspects where I would think both the spiritual and the physical sides are being implemented in a here-and-now type way, whereas the ultimate fulfillment is later on in Christ. Um, so I guess what I'm talking about with the Mosaic fulfilling the more physical side of the Abrahamic covenant is I believe that you could be a fully constituted faithful member of the Mosaic covenant without being regenerate. Because if you simply conformed externally, if you did the tithes, if you did the offerings, if, if the, na the nation as a whole did enough of what God was commanding them to do, then the blessings would come. Um, and, you know, you know I don't like to play the what-if type of game mm -hmm. with history because history is fixed. Um, but that that's what I'm seeing is in the New Covenant, and this is obviously where you and I would both disagree with Presbyterians, in the New Covenant, all members of the new covenant are believers in the mosaic covenant you could be 
I mean, we, we, we know that there were many, many members of the Mosaic Covenant that were rebellious, and that's largely why the prophets are sent to them, is to say, you're, you know, um, I've heard them called that the prophets were covenant lawyers bringing God's case against Israel for breaking the covenant. Mm-hmm. So we know that many of them wandered away after the foreign gods and all, but I would contend that you could keep the Ten Commandments externally, obviously not the first table, but you could keep the second table of the Ten Commandments enough to be a member in good standing of the Mosaic Covenant without having to be regenerate. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree, but I would but I would say maybe add more to that and say that a true Israelite who is really um, seeking God through keeping, you know, the sacrifices and stuff would be a regenerate guy. I agree with that, but based on New Testament revelation in Galatians again, we know that those are the children of Abraham by faith, right. and it's specifically contrasted with those who are his children by natural birth. Right. And so that that's where I'm seeing Paul drawing this distinction between, you know, we are actually Israel because we've been united to Christ through Abraham by sharing in the same faith that he had. Spiritual Israel. No, we are Israel. We are, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm like Jewish DNA. I'm saying that Israel is the spiritual descendants of Abraham. There was a national Israel. I'm not denying that. But I think the New Testament repeatedly talks about, I mean, you mentioned types and shadows. And I I totally agree with that. I totally agree that the priesthood, the, the I mean, even John talks about, the paschal lamb you couldn't break a bone in its body in jesus there was no bone mm-hmm. broken in him and i mean so yes there's types and shadows parallels sure. and all of that and i would say that national israel was a type and then the fulfillment of that is the church which is spiritual israel or just israel i mean mm-hmm. it, it is it is the thing that the type and shadow was pointing toward yeah i guess i'm less comfortable saying it that way and i'd be more comfortable saying um that as gentiles were grafted into the tree that paul mentions in romans through christ and um that was our alarm that just got set so awesome. i guess they, they forgot we we're doing a podcast we can wave at tim as he goes by uh, help so, so okay well then in that case Again, Galatians. I feel like I'm having to help you out with your favorite book here. No, I, I mean I'm I'm down with Sarah and Hagar, and one of them being you know the son of the you know one of them being the son of the 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 flesh, one of them being the son of the promise, and the we're doing away with Hagar, and and then and then the shocking thing was in Jews, you're Hagar here, right? <laughs> you're not, you're not okay, but Hagar wasn't Israel, right? Yeah, so he's he's saying. I think that he's he's demonstrating the shift from the type to the anti-type, from the shadow to the reality. Yeah, I would say we are spiritual Israel as we are in Christ because Christ is Israel. That's what I'd be comfortable saying. I, so I wouldn't be quite as bold as you are. So in Galatians 6.16, when Paul is giving kind of the typical benediction and wrap mm-hmm. up and all, and he says... Um, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, which totally should be the tattoo you get to match mine. 
Um, and then in the next verse, he says, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Is Paul there talking about the church, or is he talking about national Israel? Sorry, I'm just trying to fix our alarm situation. Because <laughs> when we leave, it will probably go off. Do we have motion detectors inside? Not in this room, so... Nice. Not so, you know, anyways, um, say that one more time. Sorry. Okay. So six fourteen, Galatians six fourteen. but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. I, I think we would agree that he's giving a benediction, closing the letter, addressing mm-hmm. the church. Yeah, and I think this part, he actually starts writing himself. He, I think he had an yeah, 11. See with what? And so like letters. he's picking up some of his major points that he's already dictated to the amanuensis. Okay. Yeah. And so then in 16, he says, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Yeah. Who is that? I would say all those who are united to Christ. So they are Israel. Yeah. They are the yeah. Israel of God. Yeah. I guess I just, um, maybe I'm just um, taking Paul's warning about um, boasting, you know, where he says, you know, don't be boastful because, you know, just like those other branches were cut off, you could be cut off too. So I, I don't know. I And I've been brought, brought up so much in a dispensational mindset that I, it's probably big for me to, you know, for a lot of dispensationalists for me to say, yeah, we're Israel as much as we're in Christ because Christ is Israel and he's the recipient of the promises. He gets the promises. He's the fulfillment of them. The dividing wall was brought down between the Jews and Gentile. There's one body underneath him. Christ is the Israel recipient and we're in him. I'm very comfortable saying all of that. Okay, and I, and I think there's probably but you a think, distinction without a with without a. But you, and correct me if I'm wrong. This is a very common dispensational one, but you're not a common dispensational. Correct, dispensationalist. Yeah. Um, do you believe that there is a future for national ethnic Israel? Yes, that's where we differ. Because I see that in the cross, and then again in AD seventy. God is clearly and explicitly putting an end to the nation of Israel because it had gotten to the end point and fulfilled its purpose, which was to bring the Messiah. And so now that the reality has come, that we are, in fact, Israel in Christ, we no longer need the shadow. Yeah, and I would just go back to saying Christ, that future national Israel... Israeli government is Christ reigning and ruling here on earth across the world. It's his throne that he will have forever. Um, And there will be ethnic Jews who are a part of him who help reign. And there will be Gentiles who are in him who help reign. Okay, so this actually gets us into tonight's topic because that is the (laughs) Davidic covenant, which ends up talking about the throne of David. You and I both agree that Christ sits on the throne of David eschatologically. 
Yeah, in the in the eschaton, he will be on the throne of David. I think we disagree about whether he's on the throne of David now. Yes. And I think we disagree about whether or not there's a special 1,000-year period prior to eternity when he sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Yes. Those are all points of disagreement Okay, from previous discussion. Yeah. Unless you've seen the light. (laughs) I'm hoping to show it to you tonight, brother. (laughs) So we're in for a long podcast. Have you ever noticed that when you don't normally say brother, when you're, you know, like when you actually do to a Christian, it's like like a condescending pat on the head. (laughs) Praying for your brother. Well, we grew up brother. Brother, oh, brother, not. brother, brother. Yeah. So we came to this church and we were like, Brother Jack, and they, they got a kick out of that. Like, it's just Jack. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I didn't grow up calling pastor, pastor. Yeah. I mean, I might say, you know, Pastor John or Pastor Smith, but it's been a weird thing for, and I've actually kind of started doing it much to my surprise, but just calling the pastor by his title of mm-hmm. pastor, like, hey, there's pastor, that, Mm-hmm. That was very grating on me when we first came here oh, yeah. because that's just not what I was used to. Yeah. It sounded. So when I go back home and I preach, it's Brother Michael. That's okay. That's just weird. It's I, weird unless I, you're I'm used not saying to it. it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just like based on my upbringing. That just. Right. I don't know. It's just weird. So should we read the the text? Sure. For tonight. So. If you're familiar with the life of David and a plug for our church, Charleston Bible Church, if you would like to hear our pastor, Pastor Joel, preach this very sermon, he just got through preaching this text Sunday. And uh, those sermons are available on our Facebook. They are also available through Anchor as well because our church started doing podcasts as well. So. And if you watch the video towards the end, that's me weeping softly in the front row. <laughs> uh, all right. So I really like I filled up my note page before he got to the end because I knew I just wanted to put my pins. Away. <laughs> so in David's life, he's kind of and I, th- I really appreciate we're going through a sermon series on David. Our pastor talks about the four acts of David's life, his rise on the run, his uh, rule. rule, and then remorse, which I think we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. So he's really kind of at the height of his reign. He's successfully, finally successfully gotten the ark. But I'd call it his apex. His apex. Mm-hmm. What did I say? His The, the uh, high point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people would call it the apex. But I, yeah, but I would. <laughs> Um, so he's at the high point of his kingship. He, you know, after a failed attempt of moving the ark into Jerusalem, he's finally got the ark into Jerusalem and he, man, I really appreciated that sermon. Yeah, that was, that was particularly helpful with some stuff we're dealing with in our household right Mm now. Um, the, it was, um, Uzzah and the ark. And his good intentions were not good enough. Mm-hmm. And they had failed to be obedient. And when things went south, an attempt to rescue it resulted in his death. Yeah. And, and, the, and the problem wasn't what he did in that moment. The problem was their preparation was faulty because they had disobeyed mm-hmm. prior. And, so, and you wonder if David had read the law as kings were s- supposed to do. 
or write out the law, right? Yeah, they were yeah. supposed to write their own copy of it, um, at least the Torah. Yeah. I, I get the sense that that's really the first five books. Yeah. Since the command comes in those. Right, yeah. right. Um, so now he talks to Nathan, and he's like, hey, I want to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan says, sure, right on, which I'm assuming he it's not faulted to him because he doesn't say thus says the Lord. He's just like, yeah, sounds good to me. And then Nathan that night is met by the Lord and, and he comes back and, um, yeah, so, I don't get any sense that God chastises him. No, he's just like, this is not, this is not how, I, how I want it. So that's cool. where we're going to we take a quick rabbit trail here too. Yeah, sure. Sorry. I so, mean, we're all about rabbit yeah, trails. Know, yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to do an Apollos episode. <laughs> this is one reason that th- this is a passage that shapes and interprets how I shapes and helps me interpret uh, the qualifications for elder, right? David was actually disqualified from building God's temple because of his obedience, right? I, I don't I don't take the reference to him being one who has shed so much blood necessarily a reference to Uriah. I think David was a man of war. He had gone out. He had done what God told him to do. He had killed his ten thousands, and that was obedience. And God says, great, that's not the type of guy that's going to build me a house. And so he was disqualified from a particular service because he was obedient to other commandments from God. Um, And so you're looking at me weird, like, how is he going to tie this together? I'm waiting. I'm like... So, well, you, you get to the qualifications for elders, and it, it goes through some stuff. And in particular, it talks about the children of elders being a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and without fail, it seems like people want to uh, equivocate there almost immediately. And it's like, well, it doesn't mean adult children, or, um, well, it doesn't mean this, or, well, you know, and... and I'm not against contextualizing. I'm not against Mm -hmm. trying to make sure that we get it right. But I do think if you look back at David, there may be times that a man in and of himself would be totally qualified, but because of his spouse or because of his children, I think he ought to be disqualified. And I think that is something that is almost never, almost never considered when looking at whether or not a man is fit for ministry. I will say, at least in our church, we definitely look at it on the onset. Um, and then, of course, there is a question about when it says children, does it mean... I, mean, I think there's some good people on both sides of that debate of, well, once... If if they were temperate and under control and then, you know, they aren't believers as adults, does that... I don't think that... I don't think that disqualifies uh, an elder... Because we know that that ultimately is the work of God. I mean, but, and I'm not necessarily arguing against that, but I would say so is calling to church leadership. And so it may be that God is disqualifying someone from something that's not even in them. Just a thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Honestly, I've read that passage and struggled. So I, I, I have not come down on whether the adult offspring of an elder should their decisions reflect on their continued eldership. Um, 
So one, I'm still struggling with it too. Absolutely. I have not come down. I've come down firmly on both sides. <laughs> um, but I will say Eli is chastised because of what his sons are doing. And we even have in scripture that Eli is recorded as trying to get them to stop when they were adults. Right. But they were directly under his authority as priest with him being the the priest at the time. I, again, I'm not I'm not being dogmatic here. Right. But, but just you, trying to contextualize. You, I mean, you, I'm not saying that there's a right answer. What saddens me is that these types of things, most people would hear me say this and immediately stamp legalist across my forehead rather than go, okay, let's, let's think that through and mm-hmm. make sure that when we're ordaining men to the ministry, we're, you know, not being hasty in the laying on of hands. Right. I don't know. So I think somebody said that. Right. Right. I'm doing a weird thing with my hand. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, that's, that's good. Rabbit trail concluded. Rabbit trail concluded. So let's pick up with, um, what Nathan has to say uh, to David, actually what God has to say to Nathan. He says, now there, this, so this is second Samuel seven, eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Yeah, I like, I think I heard Joel say this, but I've heard others say it too. David says, God, I'm going to build you a house. God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a house. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really nice, touching. Um, I almost broke up reading. I don't know if you 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 detected that. I just, I had, mm, yeah. Um, I did look up last night wondering <laughs> if I was going to need to take over for you. Oh, yeah, for, uh, you were reading some passage and oh, I was yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a long pause. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> Here we go. Um, yeah, so I can get emotional from time to time. Um, so the Davidic covenant, and we talked a little bit of, you know, just in passing <clears throat> about the Solomonic covenant, the covenant to Solomon. And so when you read that passage, there seems to be an awful bit of, I would say, double double entendre. So there's like like God speaking, and you can see a here and now fulfillment that's about to happen. 
obviously Christ never needed to be chastised because of iniquity. Solomon does. He never needed to be chastised for his own iniquity. That's true, but when it says, yeah, um, I agree that when he commits iniquity. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with you. I think yeah. there's types and shadows in play here. Right. I think Solomon committed iniquity. I think Christ was treated as if he had committed iniquity. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's the parallel there. Yeah. Um and I think, you know, like you said, the what if game we shouldn't play. But I think there's a conditional promise here to Solomon that if, you know, if he's faithful that this throne's not going to leave him and obviously he shows himself to not be faithful. David's promise that it won't be taken away from him like it was Saul, but you know, the next generation with Rehoboam, his son and Jeroboam, his servant, it, the nation gets split, um, which is and, a puzzling thing because Jeroboam was also in, o- obeying. I think he was obeying up to the point where he refused to let the people go down to worship in Jerusalem. Cause he was afraid if I let them do that, then I'm going to eventually lose them. And so they set up their own temple, and I think that's where things go off the rails. But Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting is you go through, and for 400 years, God doesn't take away the kingdom from the house of David. You know, yeah, it's not the 12 tribes, and, you know, Solomon has splendor and it's amazing and then it quickly dwindles and it's down to um you know the two tribes and things get bad but i was reading um i think i read this in uh, the christ of the yeah the christ of the covenants by robertson i think that's who it is and he was talking about the dynasties that existed around israel at that time and how um none of them even come close and in there was no dynasty in Israel that even lasted a hundred years, Israel being the northern kingdom. Mm-hmm. But David's dynasty in Judah is like over 400 years before God finally comes in and does away. And interestingly enough, you go to the end of Second Chronicles, which would have been the last book in the Old Testament for Jews. And I mean, it... It gets bad. I mean, it is decline after decline after decline after decline. They go into exile. I mean, it's just, it's pitiful, just awful. Especially if you if you read it through quickly, you're like, David, wow, Solomon, woo, woo, yeah. Woo. But um, there's something at the end. Oh, I don't have it at me right with with me right now. Maybe it's at the end of Kings, but the last king, I think, Jehoiachin. Yeah, sorry, it's it's the end of Second Kings. From this in the thirty seven, uh, I can talk. And in the thirty seventh year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty seventh day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon. I mean. I know it's just coincidence, but I love it. Like evil. (laughs) Um, In the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. 
So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So it's like at the end of this long, terrible, steep slide, there's just kind of this blip of an upward trajectory like... Mm -hmm. God hasn't forgotten his people. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, it's very reminiscent of Exodus. I think it's the end of chapter two where it says, but God saw and God knew. Right. Or God heard and God knew, you know. And it's like, this this isn't the end of the story. Right. There's something more coming. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, you know, even though that was the end, as it were, of the Davidic line, I think that it's promising, okay, even though we know this is ending, It's not really ended. Mm -hmm. We're going to pause the conversation right there. Please join us next time for part two of this discussion on the Davidic Covenant. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. 